0: Okay, so Act 5, Scene 1, um, it isn't a very long scene, but it is a scene which offers us Caesar's response to the news of Antony's death. Um, so we'll go through kind of the, the plot of Act 5, Scene 1, and then we'll pick it apart. Um, it's a really good one in terms of thinking about how we see Caesar, and then thinking about how Shakespeare's maybe using artistic license to play around with the uh, historical information that was given about how he responded to the death of Anthony. So Caesar instructs Dolabella to go to Anthony and insist that he surrenders. So at this point, Caesar is unaware that Antony is dead. Um, and then Derctus or uh, Desertus, depends on how you pronounce it, uh, the person who stole Antony's sword in Act 4, um, comes in and he informs Caesar of his rival's death. And Caesar describes how the news should, should shatter the world. Um, and then as the scene develops, Agrippa and Messina pay tribute to the dead Antony. Um, Caesar laments for the loss of Antony, and then it's interrupted by the arrival of a messenger from Cleopatra asking Caesar what he requires of her. And then Caesar sends a message assuring Cleopatra that she will be treated honourably and instructs Proculus to ensure that she doesn't commit suicide. He wants to bring her back alive to Rome with, with the obvious intentions of using her as a trophy of war. So we'll go through it kind of chronologically. Um, obviously, the beginning of it when uh, Caesar says, you know, he mocks the pauses that he makes, that kind of um, emphasis of he makes himself looking ridiculous by delaying his surrender. There's obviously irony there because we know that that's not Antony's intentions whatsoever and, and Caesar's yet unaware of what's happened. Now, um, when the sword of Antony is brought in by... Um, Darcitus, Dersetis, I think Darcitus probably. Um, he was a follower of Antony. He says, Antony, I served, who best was worthy best to be served. Um, and then he says, if thou please to take me to thee as I was to him, I'll be to Caesar. And we're reminded that he is a fickle follower and there seems to be a real lack of honour um, that he is so willingly able to transfer his loyalty from one leader to another. And he... Uh, inform Caesar that Antony is dead, um, and Caesar's response isn't one of glee, it's not one of happiness and of, oh yeah, I've, I've won, I've beat. He uses hyperbole to kind of describe how the death should have almost provoked greater supernatural responses. He describes the breaking of so great a thing should make a greater crack. Um, and even, you know, the world should have shook lions into civil streets and citizens to their death. Um, he describes how uh, a moiety of the world, so, you know, half of the world a greatness is gone, essentially. Um, so there is that um, respect that he gives in, in when he finds out of his passing. Um, we have to consider, is this sincere or is it serving a bigger purpose? We have to remember that this speech... Is made in public, is this something that might be reported in terms of how Caesar is honourable, in terms of recognizing Antony's greatness as a as a as a Roman officer and in terms of his kind of celebrity status in the Roman world? So we have to consider that setting and the idea of this being public might factor in to Caesar's choice of words. Um, there's a lie from our um self-serving follower. He says that self-hand which writ his honor in the axe as it did. So in other words, you know, he he's there is honor in death. He he took his own life with the courage which the heart did lend it splitted the heart. Um so that that was his his decision it wasn't he was killed. He he chose to take his life. Um and he says I robbed his wound of it. Um and he didn't it was it was on the floor at this point, and he took it. So he there is lies there, and he says, you know, behold, it stained with his most noble blood. There is a sense that this person's self serving. Like if he truly felt that way, then why would he so um, quickly decide to take Antony's sword, let him bleed out, and have a have a really horrific ending um, instead of you know obeying his master's kind of final words like dispatch me quickly? He didn't. He ran away. Um, so it's something to consider. Um, Caesar then, there's an, an internal stage direction in terms of his um, response. He, he talks about, you know, look, you sad friends, the gods rebuke me, but his tidings to wash the eyes of kings. Like he's tearful. Um, and again, we have to think about is this a weakness? Is this admirable? Um, if we look at kind of the um, if you look back at 198, if you've got the, the, the uh, Cambridge edition, Uh, There's a description on how Plutarch describes how when Caesar heard the news of Antony's death, he withdrew into the privacy of his tent and there burst out with tears, lamenting the fate of his brother-in-law, equal in empire and companion in battle. And it's worthwhile thinking about, does our Caesar weep as much? Um, And again, thinking about the idea of doing it in private versus doing it in public might trigger a different response to that character. Um. There is a kind of Agrippa Messianus describe, you know, Antony um, in terms of his flaws and his strengths, um, and they are um, kind of giving him a this kind of almost like eulogy-esque um, admiration with after his death. He described it as his taints and honours waged equal with him, and I think that's a really striking line. To me it's almost kind of choral in function, like in equal parts Antony is tainted and honourable. And I think that does sum up how his character is presented in this play. Agrippa even mentions you know, Caesar is touched, so he's crying, he's weeping at the death of Antony. And actually, Messina says, when such a spacious mirror is set before him, he needs must see himself. So actually, it's not that he's weeping for Antony, but that this is a mirror of that maybe he as a character who is seemingly at this point winning and on high could see a similar fate fall him. So is it a mirror of his own fate in Antony that actually greatness will fall? Um, that's what Mycenaeus kind of essentially questions and queries, whether the intention of the tears are for himself or for, in fact, Antony. Now, Caesar almost kind of gives a, a minute bit of a speech. And again, we have to think about, is this a genuine tribute um, to Antony or is there a... Um, a bigger intention behind it. Again, thinking of the the fact that this is a, a political public stage that Caesar is responding to. You know, oh Antony, I have followed thee to this, but we do launch diseases in our bodies, Um I must perforce So that kind of I love that image of we do launch diseases. So in other words, uh, you had to go to allow Caesar to survive, Caesar being the body and Antony being referred to as the disease that we need to get rid of it. Um, However, he says, but yet let me lament with tears, sovereign as the blood of hearts, my brother, my competitor, my mate in empire, friend and companion in the front of war. Um, And I suppose, although he kind of talks about the the triple image of, of Antony's identity and the relationship that he had with Caesar... It's still rather efficient um and it seems rather controlled in terms of the um the language it's almost like it felt it feels thought through it feels public it, it doesn't really feel fully genuine. Um, and again is it a reminder that Caesar as ever, is efficient and he won't allow emotion to interfere or overwhelm the, you know, the business of the moment. He even talks about at that point, uh, um, hear me, good friends. And then the messenger comes in and he's like, actually, I'll tell you at some meter season. So when we've got a bit more time, we'll talk about that. So he he pauses his tribute to Antony and Death because business is more important. Um, And it's just another reminder of whether or not we see you know, this to be a genuine tribute to to the death of Antony on Caesar's behalf. Um, and it's it's just something to kind of um consider in terms of how we see um, Caesar as a leader in a sense and kind of the uh, emotional response we have as an audience to him. So the Egyptian comes in and essentially uh, reminds him of that is Cleopatra sent him to say what what Caesar wants of her um, so she says confined in all she has her monument of thy intense desires instructions um, and she apparently may frame herself the way she's forced to in other words I want Caesar to tell me what he wants and I'll do it. Now we have to remember as an audience that seems to be dual natured because Cleopatra has already confided in her, her um Charmian and Iris, her two maids. And to us as an audience that her intention is to take her life, that she wants to die um, she and she will commit suicide. It's the honourable way. So as an audience, we might be kind of curious as to, well, then why is she saying that she will bend the knee in many ways to whatever Caesar pleases? Has she got an ulterior motive here as well? Is she playing the game? And we have to remember that Cleopatra in that way is a clever politician even at this point too. Um, and we have to kind of consider her role as both lover and, you know, royal queen of Egypt at this point um, as well. She's as conflicted potentially in terms of her identity as as Antony has been. Um, So yeah, it's just just something to consider. Um, And Caesar, again, how do we feel about this? We have to remember, you know, kind of um, intentions here and whether things are kept under the surface and what's genuine or not. Uh, He says, uh, bid her have some good heart. Caesar cannot live to be ungentle. Um, so, in other words, like, oh, we'll take care of her, don't worry. I'm not too sure if I believe Caesar. Um, we've seen that actually he can be really cruel and callous, um, particularly of people who followed Antony. He said, you know, he would pick them at the front, so Antony feels like he's attacking himself. He's got rid of Lepidus very quickly. He was really quite horrible to his sister, calling her castaway. Um, so, there are multiple, uh, you know, examples of Caesar showing um, unkindness or being ungentle in many ways. So, this seems to be again, is it a tactic of Caesar because he wants her to think that she's got a chance to then, you know, that she won't take her own life because she says that he says that essentially after the Egyptian exits. Um, Give her what comforts the quality of her passion she'll require. And this is the important line, Lest in her greatness, by some mortal stroke, she do defeat us. In other words, um, that she, she'll take her own life. And um, he talks about her life in Rome would be eternal in our triumph. She'll be a trophy of war and he can't risk her essentially taking matters into her own hands and taking control of her. Um, so we remember that we are kind of um, made aware of his motives at this point. We are not fully aware of Cleopatra's. Um, and it helps to just create tensions for this, this final um, moment between Cleopatra and Caesar and the moment in which we see essentially who, in inverted commas, wins. Um, so Caesar in his last point is essentially... Um, this kind of lasting image that we get, that public image of the astute politician. Let him alone, for I remember now how he's employed. I shall in time be ready. Go with me to my tent where you shall see how hardly I was drawn into this war, how calm and gentle I proceeded still in all my writings. Go with me and see what I can show you in this. You know, there's reason and rational action over emotion is, is what's important for Caesar. And it's almost like I want to tell you my game plan and I want to show you that this was methodically thought out and planned. There was no right decisions in this. Again, we have to consider Caesar is also probably thinking about the public reaction to Antony's death Um, as as Xenobarbus earlier pinned down Caesar has potentially won the minds of the followers of Rome but do their hearts lie elsewhere Um, do their hearts lie with Antony how is this going to be responded so Caesar's really thinking in a very calculating very methodical and very rational perspective about how his actions are going to look in terms of a public eye really clever. And so we move on to the final scene in the play, the the kind of dramatic climax, Um, and it's a a lengthy scene and one that is it's quite useful to break it up into into different units as a way of unpacking it. But uh, at the beginning of the scene Cleopatra scorns Caesar and contemplate suicide uh, before proculeus enters and he enters and asks her what she wishes from caesar and her um, uh, her her terms are that she asks that her son may be allowed to rule egypt kind of securing a legacy, in a sense, um, and Proculeus uh, assures her of Caesar's generosity. However, it's um, when he assures her of good intentions, soldiers then break in and seize her, and thus he has prevented Cleopatra's attempt to stab herself. Um, and she says, in, a, in really angry, way she will, she will try to find some other way of killing herself. So let's go through that little bit first before we look at the entrance of Dolabella. Um, so she is. I love that opening line where she says, my desolation does begin to make a better life. Um, that actually in the face of tragedy and desolation, you know, that destruction, other, other ending, she's like, it's a better choice. Um, and it's a, quite a stoic perspective that's adapted uh, from Cleopatra. She seems resolved on suicide and, and taking her own life. Um, and there is a sense of control. And dignity in, in that, that she doesn't seem to be entering it in an emotional, you know, someone backed into a corner. She sees this as um, as a better future, in inverted commas, for her. Um, and she describes Caesar's, you know, it's paltry to be him, not being fortune. fortune. He, he's but fortune's knave, a minister of her will and that idea of fortune being personified here that um Caesar is actually just a prisoner to fortune he thinks that he's one and that he himself is fortune but she's kind of saying you know tides can turn essentially um and there's there's a um a way that he needs to um be aware that he could easily be vulnerable to the whims of fortune as Antony has um and she kind of in those few lines there is a sense that is Cleopatra Becoming kind of aware, it's a slight moment of ananurysis in many ways that um, she realizes the worthlessness of her former glory. That actually, and this is a very Jacobean perspective. You know, when we can we can do a bit of further research into the rise of humanism, this relationship with um, the human body and the soul and what matters. And there is a, a real kind of. Um, obsession I suppose and a rising emergence in that the body is merely just a vehicle for something greater and that actually it's these things on in, in life are, are just material and will all disappear and we all rot essentially but it's the soul is everlasting and there's sense seems to be that there's kind of this existential reflection in Cleopatra's voice at the beginning that she's commenting on what she's to face and on what's happening now and what will happen in the future um, perspective on life and I suppose life after death has kind of shifted since Antony has gone for Cleopatra. There seems to be a marked shift in her character. So Prochuleius enters, um, and they have a, a discussion, and uh, she says, Antony did tell me of you, be it me trust you, but I do not greatly care to be deceived that have no use for trusting. So in other words, she's still unsure of kind of the trustworthy intentions. She doesn't fully believe that Caesar or a messenger from Caesar is someone to be trusted um, <clears throat> and she says essentially you know you must tell him that majesty to keep decorum must no less beg than a kingdom so in other words I will behave as a queen I am not a prisoner of war he will treat me as a queen of Egypt I will not beg for my life or beg for something this needs to be kind of two equals coming to a political negotiation in terms um like a treaty um and again it's worthwhile thinking about why is she is she leading time essentially is she trying to kind of work out what caesar's intention might be um is she trying to see can she remain intact is she playing for time is she trying to suss how the ground sits in terms of caesar's intention so it's worth thinking about all the time what is what's underneath the surface for these characters is it necessarily their intentions underneath the surface mightn't be how it's necessarily presented on stage and we have to remember that he does say, if he pleases to give me conquered Egypt for my son, he gives me so much of mine own as I will kneel to him with thanks. So in other words, I will kneel with thanks if he does this. In other words, will she's kind of in very clever way securing the Ptolemy kingdom for her son until allow that instead of it going into the hands of the Roman Empire. <clears throat> and again, that suggests that her intentions aren't necessarily personally motivated, but that she's thinking about... Um, you know, the royal line and that concept of lineage and inheritance and what is right and what is honourable. Um, Pro- 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 Proculaeus says, you know, be be good of cheer, you've fallen into a princely hand, fear nothing. Um, we There's that dramatic irony that underpins that because we're not so convinced that she should be worried, you know, it feels that um, Caesar is potentially not to be trusted, um, that it's he's not necessarily the most gentle or princely, you could say, in terms of um, sticking to his side of the bargain or sticking to treaties. We've seen that. Look what he did with the the treaty between the triumvirate and um, Pompey. So we have to remember all of that uh, influences how we see this final conclusion. And Cleopatra... It's worthwhile in her response is thinking about, do, does she mean this? Um, or is she trying to you know, flatter Caesar by reducing her own status? She says, tell him I am his fortune's vassal. So like a slave. I send him the greatness he has got. Is that genuinely her intention or her feeling that she's reducing herself for Caesar? Or has she got an ulterior motive at this point? In other words, to, to get rid before she then takes her own life as a as a, um, as a way of, you know, defeating and conquering him. Um, he says, have comfort. And then the, there's a stage direction kind of on line 34, which some of the guards come behind Cleopatra and sees her. And it's a real sign that she's being betrayed. Um, now, it's worthwhile thinking about um, th- that stage direction is not Shakespeare's, but is a later edition. So it can have a real effect on how we see this moment of the trial um in lots of different ways. Um, she she tries to, you know, she draws a dagger, quick, quick, good hands. Um, and it's kind of there's that like impulsive instinct when cornered is to to take a knife and to, and to take her own life. Um, and well, it's whether or not we say, is it towards herself or her captors? Is that left to a director's intentions? To me, it feels like it would be to herself because she realizes that she's being backed into a corner and this is her last attempt to, to exert control. Um, He seizes and disarms her. And I suppose what's devastating for us is she, she potentially trusted him um, or thought that she would have that moment of control and it's snatched away from her really quickly impopularly threatens her um online kind of 42ish Cleopatra do not abuse my master's bounty by the undoing of yourself so you know do not um take your own life essentially um, let the world see his nobleness well acted which your death will never let come forth so this kind of um you know it's choice she's determined to to grab her own fate and destiny and not essentially a destiny and a life which caesar has planned for her is what's emphasized in that and um, she she will serve caesar greater good being alive um and being used as a, as a tool for public humiliation than she would serve him being dead um and that, that that's essentially the, the driving force of this cleopatra asks that rhetorical question where art thy death come hither come come take a queen um she, she desires death at this point. We have to remember that death and suicide for these two characters, for Antony and for Cleopatra, is a way of exerting control and power over their own destinies. Um, and it's ultimately because she has an awful fear of being humiliated, because we know that that's exactly what Caesar intends to use her for, is for humiliation um, and to strengthen his own status as sole ruler of the Roman Empire. Um, it's interesting that Prochulius kind of says temperance later in other words calm you know show show patience if anything that's Anything that Cleopatra could ever be in her life, um, and ultimately she says, "You know, if I if if I can't have it by a knife, I'll I'll take my life and control something else. Take take it through other controls." She says, "I will eat no meat. I'll not drink. Um, I will not be pinioned at your master's court, nor once be chastised with the sober eye of dull Octavia." Um, and she asks this question, "You know, shall I be, shall I hoist me up to show me to essentially the mobs?" Of, of Rome, those rhetorical questions, and I love her response, she's like rather a ditch in Egypt, be gentle grave unto me, um, that it's almost like uh, a grotesque death in, in Egypt would be a, a fate better than a, a, po- a political and public humiliation. There is a sense of that what would happen to her would be dishonourable, where she wants to you know, hold on to her honour and her reputation as queen by, by dying in Egypt by her own terms. And there is something really admirable about that. Like it's a really, really, really forceful um, and powerful decision that she's trying to make, albeit tragically kind of hued with the idea that she she desires death, that death is the only way that she can sustain any type of honour and, and reputation. Um, and I love the hyperbole in the... Um, imagery of Egypt where she says, rather on Nilus's mud, so like the the, the kind of, um, the, the Nile, the River Nile, like in the, the mud, um, that she would lay stark naked and let the waterflies blow me into a pouring. So that kind of really grotesque, but, you know, um, that flies will deposit eggs in her and she'll bloat in the river. Really grotesque um, death and almost kind of plague-like rather than a humiliation in Rome is what she desires. Um and it's, it's striking for us as an audience. And so, um, essentially, the Dolabella then comes in and takes over a guard of Cleopatra from Proculaeus. And Cleopatra tells Dolabella of a dream that she has had of Antony. Her focus then shifts to Antony. And she tells Dolabella her dream of a, almost like a superhuman Antony, exceeding all comparison. Um, and Dolabella confides in her that he too feels grief and then confirms her worst fears is that Cleopatra will be led in triumph through Rome. So, um, and this is the scene in obviously in the national theatre production that we saw, I think Dolabella was played by Octavia, um, and we talked about in our our group chat about that decision, um, that ultimately was it another woman kind of um, helping another woman, like two women who would be wronged by the same man in many ways and was it that kind of um that that kind of intention in in this contemporary production and it was it was interesting um it's it was something to think about but obviously in your in your literature um exam you would focus on the presentation of Dolabella. if you got this it could be worthwhile mentioning but it's mainly you're focusing on the on what's in the text rather than a um what a director has chosen to do um so um essentially Cleopatra confirms to uh, that she would die essentially. So, like, what news will you do? You want me to pass on to Caesar Proculeus? Assassin? and it's that I will die. I would die. I want that. Um, and he exits with the soldiers, and Cleopatra that kind of emphatic and slightly hyperbolic image in which she describes him. I dreamt there was an emperor Antony. Oh, such another sleep that I might see, but such another man. This kind of. It's been a repeated concept throughout the play that Antony is almost kind of superhuman or godlike or um, from another world in terms of how he's presented. And Cleopatra picks up on that idea. And I love the hyperbole in the image of where she describes his face and his eyes, this dream that she has of him. And it's a real kind of contrast with her previous self-preservation that her focus in terms of her, like, mental focus, shifts from her own mortality and her own death to actually the greater concept of Antony, that that's what's now on her mind. Um, and I love the image of his face was as the heavens, um, and therein struck a sun and moon which kept their course and lighted the little O, the earth. In other words, that, that Antony exceeds. Antony is the sun, Antony is the moon, he is the heavens and the sky. And actually they they give light the world and she I love her image of the earth as being the little o, like that little tiny minuscule thing that it, it's Anthony's greatness kind of eclipses all of that and um, it's it's beautiful poetry really beautiful poetry um, and she continues that idea in the in the next speech she describes how you know for his bounty there was no winter in it and autumn twas it grew the more by reaping and it's almost kind of cosmic imagery that's used um in the description and that Antony is almost transcendent, that he he exists somewhere towards the sublime. Um, and actually what's really interesting is that Cleopatra uses this imagery to describe Antony. And in many ways, it's using similar devices to what uh, Shakespeare was using in Ina Barbas' speech about her. Um, You know, is it reality or is it a dream? Or she says, is it past dreaming? Because she asks that question of, think you there was or might be such a man as I have dreamt of. It's almost like, did this exist? Could this exist? Did it it happen? So there are real similarities, I suppose, in terms of how she sees Antony In terms of how others see her as well, Um, and I think there is there is a there is something quite beautiful in in that um, in that idea. Um, If we even Cleopatra mentions that, but if there be no ever were such one, it's past the size of dreaming. So that idea of it's, it's something that is beyond dreaming or words or description. Um, Antony were nature's piece against fancy. You know, Antony was far greater than any imagination or that any words or any dream could imagine. And there is hyperbole there. It's that reminder of, Enobarbus describes how Cleopatra, it beggared beyond description. Yeah, that it's, words can't pin it down. And there is a similar attitude that's adopted from Cleopatra in terms of how Antony was for her. There's something deeply romantic about that i th- I do think it is it is beautiful. We must all strive for kind of feelings like this at some point. someone to kind of go you're you're so amazing it's actually beyond words or dreaming or picture um and there is a kind of element of trust that comes up because Dolabella, you know, he describes how he too grieves. Um, he says, uh, "I do feel by the rebound of yours a grief that smites my very heart at root." And um, he's emotionally distraught at um, at Antony's death, and that's what allows Cleopatra to trust what he's about to say. She says, "I thank you, sir." There is trust do you know what Caesar wants to do with me? And he tells her, um, so I'm loath to tell you, though he be honourable. So that is the kind of, you know, that he, he'll he essentially, he'll, he'll not kind of betray you in that way, but he'll lead me then in triumph. And it's interesting that she interrupts him with that hyphen. So Dolabella, though he be honourable, he'll lead me then in triumph. So it confirms that she knew exactly what his intentions were. Um, and they've kind of got the measure of one another, it's now to see who acts first, isn't it? Or who acts the quickest. Um, And Dolabella confirms that he will, I know it. And for Cleopatra, it wholly confirms for her that suicide is her only option. Um, That it's the only way that she can have control over her destiny. And that is the honourable decision to do. So um, there is a kind of, With Procula, Caesar, and Gallus and Messina entering, this is almost a scene in which I always kind of say it's like shadow shadow boxing, that we're kind of unsure of either's intentions. but we are kind of given their intentions in the scene before. So it's whether or not we, we, we see a kind of falsehood playing out in terms of the dialogue between Cleopatra and Caesar. So she kneels in submission, uh, for example. Uh, he promises no harm will come to her, but says her children will suffer if she attempts suicide. And then she hands him an inventory of wealth. So again, we're thinking about why are all of these decisions and threats being made? Um, what's the kind of greater purpose behind them? But there is a dignity when she when she kneels and she she kind of gives him what he wants in a sense, that kind of respect. But he kind of, you know, arise, you shall not kneel. He treats her in a really astute way with diplomatic authority, like you're a queen stand and rise Egypt even that kind of you know you are queen I will give you dignity but again what's the ulterior motive here he wants to obviously make Cleopatra feel at ease Um, and she does rise and again is there an insincerity and a clever manipulation from two political leaders here and I think the answer is yes Um, and it's worthwhile thinking about which one do we admire or is it because we know what their intentions are before this that this scene is hewed with even greater tension that we know that they're both have ulterior motives Um, Cleopatra I love her her lines on 121 I think it's really interesting of whether we see her as being sincere she uh, describes how she has been laden with like frailties which before have often shamed our sex Um, and it's an interesting one she kind of describes how you know she's she's shown um, frailties because she's a woman um, and that that's shameful and I thought is that sincere because she doesn't really seek to put blame on on antony to kind of preserve her or to to preserve herself um so she's kind of putting the blame on her but i don't think that she actually sees any of her behaviors apart from her manners with her paranoia i suppose with antony is that that's the frail day um so it, it's an interesting one but she she um she doesn't put blame on antony she puts things on herself um and caesar's response he kind of seeks to exonerate her at the expense of Antony. So that if you seek to lay on me a cruelty by taking Antony's course, in other words, if you choose to take your own life like Antony did, I'll see that as personal. You lay on me a cruelty. He then threatens her, you shall bereave yourself of my good purposes. Again, what's his purpose? His good purposes are for his own benefit, essentially, not for hers, and put your children to that destruction which I'll guard them from. So in other words, I will I'll I'll will kill your children so a kind of weird mixture of um threat and treat i suppose uh, that that caesar offers um and she gives him her you know an inventory of the personal wealth again we might be thinking why has she done that um especially you know seleucus reveals that cleopatra has kept back at least half her wealth and then she angrily rebukes him saying that he has betrayed and shamed her she apologizes to caesar for her attempt to deceive him Again, it's kind of worthwhile thinking about why she's done that. This seems to be all acting and gameplay. This seems to be kind of premeditated in terms of what she's tried to do. You know, does she hold it back to make Caesar think that she wishes to live? Yeah. And if so, it's really admirable in terms of the level of deceit and lies that she goes to as a way of trying to convince him uh, so that she can claim power and control. Um, so it's something to think about, you know, I love how good of an actress she is. She describes, you know, Seculus as a slave of no more trust than love that ha- that is hired. Slave, soulless, villain, dog. Like, how dare you betray Caesar this way? Give him all of my wealth, not half. Um, so it's, it's interesting. And we know that Cleopatra is a formidable actor. Um, you know, no scenes in the play are private for Cleopatra. All of her moments are public. Every single one. So we have to think about that she's always on performance for stage. She's always thinking about how people are perceiving her. And she's doing it no better than in this scene. Um, She even describes how it is a wounding shame, doing the honour of thy lordliness to one so meek that mine own servant should parcel some of my disgraces. Um, So I have some lady trifles have reserved. This is play acting at its best. It's fantastic. And it seems to kind of work in many ways. Um, and she even does kind of say, you know, some nobler token I have kept apart for Livia and Octavia. Like Livia, we have to remember, is Caesar's wife. So like, is she flattering her? Is she making it up as she goes along? Does she adopt some other manner? So it's it's worthwhile thinking about how we see Cleopatra in, in this moment in which she's ultimately lying and deceiving him and manipulating him in a really, really clever way. And it kind of works because Caesar allows Cleopatra to retain her treasure. He departs with reassuring words and her fears about his deceit are confirmed and Dolabella informs her that she and her children are to be sent to Rome um, and then it, things start to escalate so she chooses very quickly that she needs to she needs to move quickly so I love when Caesar leaves um, and I love the final ending, you know, she says, my master and my lord, there's that reverence that she gives him, it all seems to be lying, and he's like, not so, in other words, no, 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 you know, I am your equal, um, don't worry, this is a treaty, and I love her, like, her shift, she reveals her true self, she says, he words me, he words me, and that repetitive, like, she knows he's lying, and she really has the true measure of him, she is an astute, Powerful political leader in the scene. She's truly thinking about um her her destiny and how she won't play into the hands of this man to to dishonor her. Um, And that whispering, again, I love that imagery from Iris, where it's, again, a repeated idea of light and darkness. The bright day is done and we are for the dark. Death is imminent and it's needed. There is no more light anymore. Um, And I have spoke already is provided. In other words, she's got this plan. So again, like Caesar has maybe underestimated her. Um, You know, we've seen how Caesar does this. He sends messages and plans um, outside of scenes. Um, It seems to be Cleopatra has been doing the same thing as well and it's maybe has he came up against a, a formidable equal in Cleopatra has he maybe not seen her in that way because a her race b her gender and c that she is a character who they've denounced in Rome as being a character who's emotional and excessive and hedonistic and a link to Antony does she think does he think that she is as weak in many ways as Antony and actually that's the error that Caesar makes in this scene. So if we shift on, Dolabella obviously confirms Caesar's true intentions that, you know, you and your children will he send before and then you'll go to Rome. But that's truly what he intends to do. Um, And she describes the indignities that she would suffer in Rome. And Iris vows to tear out her eyes rather than witness such a sight. And again, it's very similar to when... um, Antony was speaking to Eros about the humiliation that he would see in Rome when he was appealing for Eros to take Antony's own life. Um, and again, we can think about echoes within this play. There are real similarities in terms of loyalty um to your to a master, in a sense, and we see we see kind of similarities again that are made between how Antony embraces his death. Um and how Cleopatra is embracing hers as well. Um, so she describes, you know, the um, an Egyptian puppet shall be shown in Rome as well as I. Um, mechanical slaves, greasy aprons, so this idea of kind of public humiliation being grotesque. And um, she's like absolutely certain she knows it's going to happen. And then, you know, Antony shall be brought drunken forth and I shall see some squeaking Cleopatra boy, my greatness in the posture of a whore. Um, she's kind of talking about the, this vulgar theatrical exhibition of her and Antony, that it would humiliate him, it would humiliate her. There is an obvious irony with the description of, you know, a Cleopatra boy um, in her greatness in the posture of a whore because on a Jacobean stage, Cleopatra would have been played by a young man Um, we know that women weren't allowed on the stage so there's a real kind of irony in in terms of that image that's being made Um, but she can't allow this Roman concept of, of these two people, you know, herself and Antony, be denigrated in such a horrible, horrific and humiliating way. It's not possible. And um, Iris, you know, says, I am sure my nails are stronger than mine eyes. I'd rather tear my eyes out um, than witness such an act of shame. Um, And there's something really powerful because Cleopatra's kind of reclaiming her regal identity um, in the next bit, because she says, show me my women like a queen. Go fetch my best attires. I am again for Sidness to meet Mark Antony. So obviously, Sidness is where she first met Antony. This is like a putting on all of her royal regalia. This kind of cyclical repetition of that she will now meet Antony again, but she will meet him in the afterlife as she met him on the earth. Um, there's something really quite powerful in that image um, and it's a really clever dignified moment of stagecraft in which we see this character adopting their final identity. We've seen that with um, Antony in terms of how he dis, you know, disregarded his soldier's uniform and went into death like a bridegroom um, and she is going out like a queen but going out in a way that um, she's meeting Antony as well and there's something really really striking about that and it's it's a formidable moment in stagecraft in which Iris and Charmian dress her um later on within the scene so at this point the, uh, the guardsman uh, announces that there is um, a clown. So, um, and again, in the National Theatre production, we saw it was the same person who played the soothsayer, this idea of fate and destiny coming in, um, and he's bringing figs. And figs were a common kind of motif um, or a symbol of fate and destiny. Um, and she describes how, essentially, she doesn't know how she's going to claim her own life, what, per an instrument, may do a noble deed. Um, She's not too sure. on, obviously, we know that the, the worm of Nihilus, which is the snake and asp, is going to do it and it's in the it's in the basket of figs. Um, but I love the brilliant imagery of strength that she uses as she is about to embrace death. She says, I have nothing of woman in me. And we know, you know, it's a typical trope in literature, and um, if even in terms of society, that woman is is connoted to weakness in a sense, emotion, rash thinking, all of that. She she adopts this kind of strength and determination and resolve that's masculine and male-like. And we know that this is an idea which is, has been expanded upon in, in many of other Shakespeare's um, plays. So if we look at Lady Macbeth's speech in which she has resolved to... Um, to essentially murder Duncan you know she she um talks about like you know that even Macbeth's like bring forth male children only and she describes how she wants to be unsexed unsex me here remove all of my femininity and, and you know make me masculine and unresolved and, and strong um, and Cleopatra asks for that and the next kind of she describes how from head to foot she is marble constant so that kind of um, she is stoic and resolved and almost statuesque and impressive in terms of um, her resolve to, to take her own life. Now, when the Klein um, comes in, there's the asp, there is that kind of tension of his biting is immortal and it's obviously going to be the per instrument that will do the noble deed. Um, and we re- have to remember that we have this um, understanding of the story and the understanding of the death of Cleopatra before this ever happens. So we know that that's how she's going to enter her um, enter the afterlife. Um, and I suppose what's probably striking, we might remember this but if we go right back to the moment between Iris Charmian and the and the soothsayer in Act 1, when they were, you know, Pam reading and read about my fate and am I going to have a husband? How many children am I going to have? Will I live a long life? You know, the soothsayer um, kind of said, "No, you you will, um, you know, outlive the mistress that you serve." Well, that's true, albeit by about three minutes. Um, and even the reference of that, I think it's Charmian in a in a um, oh no, wait, no, it's Iris. Um, Iris, I think, in she says that I love lo- I love long life better than figs. And obviously there's a real proleptic irony with that line now, because we know that the the presence of figs and the snake suggests that life is now going to be short. Death is ever approaching. and um, so he leaves the basket down um, and there are some body innuendos that the clown makes, this idea of kind of chastity, going with men, the idea of dying, which we've talked about in terms of um, sexual climax and the worm being you know, referred to male genitalia. So it's worthwhile thinking about, you know, do we find this strangely humorous or is it unnerving at this intense moment of the play? Um, so it's something to think about. And again, is it that uh, as another illusion that actually it is, partly lust that has caused the downfall and the destruction and the death of these two, you know, almost like mythological lovers in many different ways. And he wishes her all the joy of the worm as she leaves. Um, And if we skip on down to with the royal attire, I love this, I love this moment theatrically. I think it's brilliant. Um, And she is really controlled and almost like unemotional in her description of the give me my robe, put on my crown, like the imperatives there. And I love that I have immortal longings in me. Um, she desires death, and there's that beautiful moment in which she's being dressed in her queen-like garbs, and this um, stoic nature that we get of this resolved woman who is determined to take her own destiny and not to be used um, as a as a sign of humiliation um, to serve a man's greater agenda. I think it, I think it's a wonderful moment, um, particularly when we think of. So many of Shakespeare's female characters as well don't really get the same moments of dignity or power that Cleopatra does. They really don't. Um so the the women dressing her. And we've talked previously in the in the podcast about how she adopts a Roman view of suicide. She describes it that Antony will praise my noble act. Um, And she almost fantasizes that she thinks she can hear Antony call, that um, Antony's kind of beckoning her to do it and he will admire her for that. And she, you know, even that like emphatic exclamation of husband, I come, um, you know, she's almost excited and elated at the thought of again meeting her husband. Um, And there is something quite tragic about that because we are waiting. We're watching this great character, ready to take their exit, their final bow on the stage of the world. If we think about it in that way, um, to kind of meet her, Antony again, um, and that brilliant moment in which she again sees herself as almost associated with the higher elements, the supernatural vastness is emphasised in Cleopatra's character. That she is, I am fire and air, my other elements I give to base her life. Um, and it's really powerful that she is almost kind of, as a as a figure, I suppose when we think about her even in terms of an audience and throughout history, she is a larger than life character. The fact that we're still talking about her and still thinking about how she's been depicted on stage and in movies and what type of woman she is, is really powerful because this woman did walk the earth. Um, so it's a really, really striking moment, I suppose, in terms of the the poetry and the metaphor that Shakespeare gives this character to speak um, and how he almost transcends her through uh, the use of metaphor. Now Iris again very similar death to Ina Barbas because lots of people have kind of are shocked by that she kisses um, her servants farewell and when she kisses Iris she worries of like have I the aspic in my lips in other words has Iris been poisoned Um, but actually Iris just falls and dies of a broken heart. She can't Bear witnessing um, her her mistress die and to take her own life. And again, it's that idea of fate and destiny. It was it was destined that Iris would die first. Um, that was laid out in Act One, and it happens here. But again, of that idea of the broken heart. Um, and we can see that being an echo of Enobarbus's death as well, of literally a broken heart and, and distraught emotions bringing, bringing death on. Um, and Charmian uses kind of imagery like pathetic fallacy um to kind of which which is ominous, you know, dissolve thick cloud and rain. So I can say the gods themselves weep. She kind of wants the sky to break and to um for rain to, to heal, to kind of weep what's about to happen, like this great figure is about to leave the earth. Um, and again, very similar to what Caesar thought would would happen with Antony's death is that kind of supernatural disasters or there would be some type of natural response um by nature itself to the death of something so great um it's it's there's echoes in terms of of both of their characters responses um and Cleopatra when she essentially that that focus shifts to Antony now, rather than the political motive of defeating Caesar, which is why, you know, she's chosen to take her own life. But actually now that's not her focus. Her focus is being reunited with Antony in death. And she's like, I need to to go quick because if if Iris meets the curl Antony, he'll make demand of her and spend that kiss, which is my heaven to have. And she then applies the asp. And it helps to um, increase the pace. The focus on Antony helps to increase the pace as well. And she is wanting death to happen quicker because she's like poor venomous fool be angry and dispatch and it helps to build tension that it's not a quick death for her either um we see this woman dying slowly on stage um There is a a hyperbole. game with Charmian's describes her as Eastern star. Um, And there is that, you know, rhetorical question that she poses of, do you not see my baby at my breast that sucks the nurse's sleep? So she describes the kind of asp in very kind of feminine mother-like imagery at that point. And again, that kind of inversion of death and life is kind of opposed in that rhetorical question. And Charmian asks, break, break. And again, it's like she just wants, you know, a Cleopatra's heart to break. She she wants death to happen quickly because she sees this suffering. And not only is Cleopatra suffering, but Charmian is suffering watching this as well. Um, and again, that one of her the 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 last kind of focus on her lips is Anthony she says oh Anthony and then applies another one and even that her her last words are interrupted with that hyphen we see that what should I stay and then she dies so she kind of dies with Anthony's name on her lips it's like her last words and we know that that was very similar to Anthony's death as well Um, and it's it feels like quite a striking ending that this great character has just gone in a sense and we're trying to, as an audience we're kind of left with the well how is the, it going to kind of wrap up and conclude um, and Charmian even asks that question of fairly well um, downy windows close, so, uh, in other words your eyes, she closes her mistress's eyes um, and I love that. Oh, such that it's such a um, really affectionate image of your crowns array, in other words Cleopatra when she's like died, her crown is kind of slanted or misshapened and she fixes it I'll mend it um and there is that kind of um that she tries to preserve this image of royalty um for Cleopatra in her death that it's preserved and it's kind of the last um act of kind of I suppose servitude that she can offer and um, there's something really quite admirable about uh, Charmian's response at that point point. Um, and even she picks up on that idea of light and dark imagery um, that she says golden Phoebus never be beheld of eyes again so royal so Phoebus being the sun god so in other words kind of now that your eyes are closed and darkness is there the sun will never see such light ever again uh, and again that hyperbole that comes with it that almost Cleopatra's got this kind of supernatural quality to outshine a sun god as well um and when the guards come in obviously it's a repeated device they're too late and it's a sense of kind of um the the idea of fate and destiny that it was destined that Cleopatra will take her own life they are literally too you know what 20 seconds potentially late to prevent that from happening but it's. It was destined that she that she were to end in, in the way that she does, and we know that's a repeated device of messengers or guards coming in just a little bit too late. Um, and Charmian uses obviously that um, euphemism of death as being sleep. Speak softly, wake her. Not uh, sleep is kind of associated with death, and um, that. She admires, Charmian declares that Cleopatra's death is appropriate for a queen, it is fitting for a princess descended of so many royal kings, so that it's the right thing to do. Um, before Charmian dies. Um, and we know it's because she's applied the asp on 316. And um, so I love that too slow a messenger and then she applies. It's like that final act of control. And there is something really powerful that you know she also chooses to go out in this way. She won't be used as a trophy. Um, and Dolabella comes in and there is, you know by this point in the play there are there are three women dead on stage um and it's very different from when we look at it's a, it's a common trope of, of tragedy in which you know the death uh the deaths on stage um or the body count by the end of a, a tragedy is is vast and in this play you could argue none no more so than than any other play i suppose the only other play that would maybe give it its runs for its money is maybe titus titus andronicus quite a bloody play um but uh Essentially, Caesar enters with all his train marching and Caesar sees what's happened. And again, we have to think about the intentions of Caesar here because he must be livid that essentially she's outed at him. She's bested him um, and she's shown to be a much more astute and manipulative leader than maybe he is. And instead of him showing his anger, um, we have to remember this, this is a public Sing, and uh, we need to think about how Caesar, how it would be reported that Caesar responded to the death of someone so great. Um, He pays tribute to her courage. He says to her, bravest at the last, she leveled at her purposes and being royal, took her own way. So, in other words, that there is an admiration in terms of that she, she was destined to take her own control. Now, I think that's a very controlled and measured response from someone who's probably boiling and seething on the inside, that he wasn't able to use her for his own means. they trying to find out the the uh, cause of death. It's, you know, what, what's the, I see no blood uh, poisoned then. Yes, absolutely. And Caesar even picks up that concept of uh, death being like sleep. She looks like sleep as she would catch another Antony in her strong toil of grace. Um, that idea of that she's still beautiful in death, that she could catch someone so great, she's still attractive and still has that capacity to, um, to capture life even though she's dead. Um, so Caesar then orders Cleopatra to be buried with great ceremony by Antony's side, and we'll think about this kind of final tribute um, and whether or not we believe it being sincere or again having a motive um, and it almost takes on a kind of eulogy form um, and we have to remember this is public Caesar has won ultimately but Antony and Cleopatra have infamy in in lots of different ways and have something beyond just political gains and that's something to think about like who has the final victory and if you look over at the notes on on 228 that description of. Um, Caesar has the world, but Antony and Cleopatra had the living. And I think that's a really interesting, critical response. Like Caesar, yes, was, is, you know, the universal landlord and sole ruler of the Roman Empire now. Um, but Antony and Cleopatra kind of arguably had more because they had one another. They had this really ferocious, passionate love affair um, that they, you know, are mythological in terms of their status and their identity as lovers, as well of having, um, you know, a really... Admirable and exciting political and public um, successes as well. So it's an interesting concept of you know what? How do we respond to these three figures at the end? Who has an in inverted commas won the greater the greater battle? Um, but if we go back to his tribute, um, there is this idea of take up her bed and bear her women from the monument. And this bit, she shall be buried by her Antony. No grave upon the earth shall clip in it a pair so famous. There is a solemn and dignified rhetoric at that point that he, instead of being petty and you know separating the two, he unites them in death. Um, and actually that emphasis of no grave upon the earth shall clip in it a pair so famous we have to remember that Antony and Cleopatra are probably the greatest celebrity lovers to ever exist, maybe, you could argue. They really are. And we have to remember that their whole love affair played out on a public stage. Um, And it was made public in an ironic way on stage literally through, you know, Shakespeare's dramatic adaptation of that story. So there is something kind of truthful in that. But this final tribute is... The speech is made in a really high Roman fashion and he preserves himself um, a kind of in the measure of the glory in this speech as well. Um, and we have to remember the high Roman of speeches. We can look at Antony's famous speech in Julius Caesar, you know, the friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. And um, this is something which Roman men do and they kind of preserve for a, a little bit of honour and reputation for themselves and other people's bigger stories too. So that might be part of Caesar's intention here as well. He he will be remembered for how he responded to these two characters' deaths as well. He does show a magnanimity in his reaction to her death, which uh, has kind of, he she's defeated his purposes, and it does echo kind of that of Mark Antony in Julius Caesar's death of Brutus. Um, it's a very measured and very controlled and thinking about how the public will perceive this, um, this kind of act, and he asks for, essentially, in solemn show, attend this funeral and then to roam. So that, you know, there will be a kind of pageantry in the funeral. There will be a dignity and a pomp and a ceremony with it that the two deserve. And there is that kind of cathartic moment in the line where he says, their story is no less in pity than his glory, which brought them to be lamented. So that kind of the flawed nature of... It, they are two people who are to to be pitied, uh, and a fear that actually so such greatness and glory could bring you to this moment of pity and sorrow, and that's ultimately the key trope of tragedy. That's what should happen by the end of it, and that final kind of image um, in which the they exit burying the dead bodies um, is it's a really striking moment in in death. However, we have to remember in many ways, is this a satisfying resolution and a conclusion for the play? And in some ways, yes, it is, because Antony and Cleopatra are reunited. They are together. Um, There is peace brought to the Roman Empire as well. Um, Rome and the Roman Empire saw a huge time of universal peace. You know, Caesar was a strong ruler. So there is kind of the previous chaos and disorder in the play, has now been resolved and there is that um, kind of harmonious conclusion that we sometimes seek for a tragedy, that order is now restored. So in many ways, compared to say the ending of Streetcar, this is a much more satisfying conclusion for us as an audience and it has that kind of cathartic response from an audience um, in terms of how it's ended where Cleopatra is going to be buried by Antony's side. So that takes us up to the end of the play. Um, I never thought we'd get there, but we have. Um, What I would recommend is if you've got the Cambridge edition, there's some really brilliant essays at the beginning and then at the very end, which kind of explore um, some of the greater themes and ideas um, that are unpacked throughout the play, and then looking at kind of character. We will explore this a bit more. And there's a little bit about the politics of the play and context um, in terms of uh, Shakespeare's use of Plutarch and the Thomas North translation and looking about the Roman Empire. So it's worthwhile kind of spending time now going through all of those scenes and thinking, are you happy with them? Are there any other, are there extracts in it that you feel a little bit more unsure about? You've got this huge kind of vast um, podcast series to draw back upon. And the next time we're together, we'll be really delving into themes and characters and critical ideas and start looking at the emag as well in terms of wider reading to help unpack your own interpretation and we'll bring all of that into our discussion when we when we meet again hope you've enjoyed these podcasts i hope they've been useful and obviously if you've got any questions or any other thoughts just ping me a message and let me know and i'll see if i can answer them talk to you soon folks i suppose the only other play that would maybe give it it runs for its money is maybe Titus. Titus Andronicus, quite a bloody play. Um, but uh, essentially Caesar enters with all his train marching and Caesar sees what's happened. And again, we have to think about the intentions of Caesar here because he must be livid that essentially she's outed at him, she's bested him. um, And she's shown to be a much more astute and manipulative leader than maybe he is. And instead of him showing his anger and um, we have to remember this, this is a public scene and uh we need to think about how caesar how it would be reported that caesar responded to the death of someone so great and um, he pays tribute to her courage he says to her bravest at the last she leveled at her purposes and being royal took her own way so in other words that um there is an admiration in terms of that she, she was destined to take her own control. Now, I think that's a very controlled and measured response from someone who's probably boiling and seething on the inside, that he wasn't able to use her for his own means. they trying to find out the the uh, cause of death. It's, you know, what, what's the, I see no blood. Uh, poisoned then. Yes, absolutely. And Caesar even picks up that concept of uh, death being like sleep. She looks like sleep, as she would catch another Antony in her strong toil of grace. Um, that idea of that she's still beautiful in death, that she could catch someone so great, she's still attractive and still has that capacity to um, to capture life even though she's dead. Um, so Caesar then orders Cleopatra to be buried with great ceremony by Antony's side. And we'll think about this kind of final tribute um, and whether or not we believe it being sincere or again having a motive um, and it almost takes on a kind of eulogy form um, and we have to remember this is public Caesar has won ultimately but Antony and Cleopatra have infamy in in lots of different ways and have something beyond just political gains and that's something to think about like who has the final victory and if you look over at the notes on on 228 that description of. Um, Caesar has the world, but Antony and Cleopatra had the living. And I think that's a really interesting, critical response. Like Caesar, yes, was, is, you know, the universal landlord and sole ruler of the Roman Empire now. Um, but Antony and Cleopatra kind of arguably had more because they had one another. They had this really ferocious, passionate love affair um, that they, you know, are mythological in terms of their status and their identity as lovers, as well of having, um, you know, a really admirable and exciting political and public um, successes as well. So it's an interesting concept of, you know, what, how do we respond to these three figures at the end? Who has an inverted commas won the greater, the greater battle. Um, but if we go back to his tribute, um, there is this idea of take up her bed and bear her women from the monument. And this bit, she shall be buried by her Antony. No grave upon the earth shall clip in it a pair so famous. There is a solemn and dignified rhetoric at that point that he, instead of being petty and you know separating the two, he unites them in death. Um, and actually that emphasis of no grave upon the earth shall clip in it a pair so famous we have to remember that Antony and Cleopatra are probably the greatest celebrity lovers to ever exist, maybe, you could argue. They really are. And we have to remember that their whole love affair played out on a public stage. Um, And it was made public in an ironic way on stage literally through, you know, Shakespeare's dramatic adaptation of that story. So there is something kind of truthful in that. But this final tribute is... The speech is made in a really high Roman fashion. And he preserves himself um, a kind of in the measure of the glory in this speech as well. Um, and we have to remember the high Roman fashions of speeches. We can look at Antony's famous speech in Julius Caesar, you know, the friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. And um, This is something which Roman men do, and they kind of preserve for a, a little bit of honour and reputation for themselves and other people's bigger stories too. So that might be part of Caesar's intention here as well. He he will be remembered for how he responded to these two characters' deaths as well. He does show a magnanimity in his reaction to her death, which uh, has kind of, he she's defeated his purposes and it does echo kind of that of mark antony in julius caesar's death of brutus um it's a very measured and very controlled in thinking about how the public will perceive this um this kind of act and he asks for, essentially, in solemn show, attend this funeral and then to Rome, So that, you know, there will be a kind of pageantry in the funeral. There will be a dignity and a pomp and a ceremony with it that the two deserve. And there is that kind of cathartic moment in the line where he says, their story is no less in pity than his glory, which brought them to be lamented. So that kind of the flawed nature of... It, they are two people who are to to be pitied, uh, and a fear that actually so such greatness and glory could bring you to this moment of pity and sorrow, and that's ultimately the key trope of tragedy. That's what should happen by the end of it, and that final kind of image um, in which the they exit bearing the dead bodies um, is it's a really striking moment in in death. However, we have to remember in many ways, is this a satisfying resolution and a conclusion for the play? And in some ways, yes, it is, because Antony and Cleopatra are reunited. They are together. Um, There is peace brought to the Roman Empire as well. Um, Rome and the Roman Empire saw a huge time of universal peace. You know, Caesar was a strong ruler. So there is kind of the previous chaos and disorder in the play, has now been resolved. And there is that um, kind of harmonious conclusion that we sometimes seek for a tragedy, that order is now restored. So in many ways, compared to, say, the ending of Streetcar, this is a much more satisfying conclusion for us as an audience. And it has that kind of cathartic response from an audience um, in terms of how it's ended. Where Cleopatra is going to be buried by Anthony's side. So that takes us up to the end of the play. Um, I never thought we'd get there, but we have. Um, What I would recommend is if you've got the Cambridge edition, there's some really brilliant essays at the beginning and then at the very end, which kind of explore um, some of the greater themes and ideas um, uh, that are uh, unpacked throughout the play, and then looking at kind of character. We will explore this a bit more. And there's a little bit about the politics of the play and context um, in terms of uh, Shakespeare's use of Plutarch and the Thomas North translation and looking about the Roman Empire. So it's worthwhile kind of spending time now going through all of those scenes and thinking, are you happy with them? Are there any other, are there extracts in it that you feel a little bit more unsure about? You've got this huge kind of vast um, podcast series to draw back upon. And the next time we're together, we'll be really delving into themes and characters and critical ideas and start looking at the emag as well in terms of wider reading to help unpack your own interpretation and we'll bring all of that into our discussion when we when we meet again hope you've enjoyed these podcasts i hope they've been useful and obviously if you've got any questions or any other thoughts just ping me a message and let me know and i'll see if i can answer them talk to you soon folks